Well, good morning, City Light. My name is Mo. I'm one of the pastors here. And man, it's great to be in the room with you guys. Uh, this is the very last week of our summer series through the book of Jonah. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Jonah chapter 4. We're going to be in those last verses there, 4 through 11. Uh, I'm wanting to preach a sermon this morning called, God Isn't Who You Think He Is. God Isn't Who You Think He Is. So let me ask you, how big is your God? Is your God infinite or limited? Is your God um, sovereign over all things, or is your God handicapped by human opinion, desire, decisions, or activities? Is your God compassionate? Is he a distant God, or is he an uninvolved God, or a close God? Is your God the God of the Bible? Now, those are some of those questions, those deep heart questions of the nature and character of God that Jonah 4 is going to address for us. You see, the book of Jonah could be summarized as a gracious God pursuing a rebellious prophet. And in chapter 1, what we saw was that Jonah runs from God, right? So God says, hey, take this message to Nineveh. And Jonah says no and goes the other direction. And then chapter 2 is Jonah runs to God because he's in the belly of a fish and asking for deliverance from God. And then Jonah 3 Jonah runs for God, so he's proclaiming that message that God had called him into. And then last week we started Jonah chapter 4, right? And what happens is that Jonah runs into God this time, right? He runs right into God because he's angry with God because God didn't do exactly what he wanted him to do. No, he, he was angry that the Lord had compassion on the city of Nineveh. And so as this book comes to a close, uh, Jonah's no longer running from God, but he's also not walking with God in this moment. Let's just say that this story isn't ending the way that we thought it might end, right? Like, like I, I think Austin said it last week that, man, if it was our story, we would have ended it at chapter 3. Jonah would have been the hero. We would have been celebrating him as one of those guys in history that were a hero of the faith. But that's not the way the story ended, you know, what, what I think the reason why the story doesn't end that way is because God doesn't simply care about us doing all the right things. He also cares that we think and believe the right things. He cares about our heart. And, and so as we walk through verses 4 through 11, I want us to observe this dialogue between Jonah and God and, and think about this. I want us to, to observe how small our perspective of God is, our perception of him, and how, how he confronts our heart in those places. That's what I want us to see this morning. And so let's pick it up in verse 4. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would ha become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah and it might be, so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And so in this first section, we see God confronts our heart with grace. God confronts our heart with grace. So what we see here is Jonah did what God said, then he got angry, and so then God asks him a question, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah's response is basically verse 5. He goes and goes build a, a booth or a tent uh, and watches over Nineveh. Now, now, why is he doing that? Well, he's essentially hoping that, that Nineveh's repentance, turning toward God, was temporary. Have you ever done that? Like, somebody's all of a sudden cleaned up their act, and there's it's just someone you just don't really like that much, and so you're watching them, waiting. Like, are you, is this real? Is that, did you really clean up your act, or is this just a facade, and I'm just waiting for the shoe to drop? Have you ever done that before? 
you're basically looking for someone to, 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 to do something different or to change back to their old life. And so that's what Jonah's doing here. He, he thinks that their repentance was superficial or temporary and that uh, he's awaiting God to go ahead and crush these people. He wants j- j- God basically to destroy his enemies. And so Jonah has, has a problem with God's freely given grace, doesn't he? He has a problem with God's freely given grace because he was on a mission trip and had an expectation for God to show up one way, and God, up, God showed up a different way. And we're not very different than Jonah, right? Like, we're a lot like Jonah in the fact that when circumstances don't go the way we thought they should have gone, well, all of a sudden, we're ticked off. We, we have a very small view of God and what we expect him to do to provide for our needs and the needs of others. You see, we want a God who, who likes people like us and a God that we can control, and so, so often we, we're displeased with God when the outcome doesn't look the way we thought it was supposed to go because it's really easy for us to proclaim, God, it's all in your hands until the circumstances don't go our way or our desired outcome isn't the product of what we see. You see, then we start to question, is God really good? Is he really faithful? Does he actually know what's going on? You see, we, we make ourselves the judge of God rather than the other way around. Really, what we don't want is a God who rules and reigns according to his will. What we want is a God that rules and reigns according to our will. We want genie God, right? Genie and a bottle God, a God who, who only cares about what we care about and grants our three wishes every day. We want a God that's more, a more powerful extension of ourselves. You see, here's the issue with that. We're not God. We're not perfectly holy, we're not perfectly good or wise. We believe this lie that we know what's best. And so if if God's will isn't the same as our will, well, then there's a problem with God's plan. If, if, if If we don't have what we want, well, then God's withholding good things from us. Or if if we suffer, it's because God isn't good or trustworthy. See, Jonah's angry because he's realizing that God isn't his genie or on his leash. He, he's he's kind of on his pity pot now, the fact that he can't control his God. You see, God isn't here to grant your wishes. God is here to display his glory. That's the point. As Jonah's waiting for Nineveh's destruction, apparently in verse 6, we see that his tent wasn't holding up over the sun. I don't know about you, but most tents, I think, shade you, but he's not very good at making tents. So that's what we get here in verse 6. And so what does God do for him? Well, well, let me pause for a second. When you see God's grace, it's amazing. It's far more than we can ever imagine. And so right here in this moment, what does God do? He gives Jonah grace. He sends a plant to instantly grow and provide shade for this guy. You see, God confronts Jonah's hardened heart toward grace by giving him grace. God created the plant for Jonah to completely destroy this idea where God helps those who help themselves. See, Jonah's heart toward grace is that he's happy to receive grace but reluctant to give it away. You see, he, he enjoys this grace. If you look at it, actually, it's for the first time in verse 6, for the very first time, this entire book, all of a sudden, this dude's happy. Like, right, like he's been depressed, sad, angry throughout the whole book, and all of a sudden he's happy. In fact, verse 6 says he's exceedingly glad, like he's so joyful. See, most of us don't have a problem with free grace as long as it's for us, as long as it's given to us for our comfort and our desires. You see, we so often handle God's gracious gospel in that way. You see, we see grace as this, this gift that keeps us out of hell and makes our life a little bit more palatable, Right? That's, that's the grace we want. We're all for that kind of grace. But when we see a grace for what it truly is, 
a freely given gift that, that gives us relationship with an all-powerful king, and that king is powerful enough to confront us in our spaces of sin and transform our hearts, well, that, that's different. We don't want that kind of God. We, we want comfortable grace. We want grace that doesn't confront who we are and how we live. That's the kind of grace we desire. See, Jonah may have known God, but he didn't have the intimacy with God. You see, God wanted to, to more than simply provide for him. He wanted an affection toward him. He, he wanted him to come to him. He, he saw God simply as someone who provided for him, and if he obeyed him, he kept him off his back. That's what he wanted. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was out on a run with, with a friend, and I'm not sure why we were running. I don't run. Um, but we were running. Anyway, and so we were having this conversation about, like, disappointment, basically, with kids. And, and, and he was talking about how his disappointment with his kid was just like, man, I'm not angry at him, but I'm just disappointed. And I, and, I, and I think that must be how God feels. I think I start to understand that. In the moment, I'm like, yeah, you're right. And then, I, y'all, I think I had a Holy Spirit moment. I think I did. I think the Spirit of God was speaking to me. It was like, wait a minute, Mo. That's not how I view you. Yes, I hate your sin, and yes, I hate what it does to you and others, but I delight in you, my son. And so I told my friend, I'm like, actually, I don't, I don't think that's how God sees you. And obviously, that was the Spirit of God and not me. And, and, and that's what I, I think God is trying to do here. God doesn't want you living your life trying to appease him, trying not to disappoint him. In fact, it's a, it's a waste of your life. It's a horrible goal for this life to try not to disappoint God. I think many of us feel that that's his general posture toward us, right, of just disappointment. Like, when we sin really bad, he gets angry, but otherwise, he's just mostly disappointed with us. Listen, if you trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, you have 100% of God's pleasure and, 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 and approval and affection toward you. 100%. He's pleased with you. You see, because you've been given Jesus' record. He's been credited you his righteousness. And so when he looks at you, he sees his son, Jesus. See, because of Jesus, God doesn't, does not, is not mad at you or disappointed with you. You see, he delights in you. And, and honestly, our life ought to be a response to that, of that delight on you. You see, what you believe about this, about God in this area, absolutely dictates how you function, everything you do in life. And so you have to ask the question, do you view God as a, a distant ruler that you must obey or a personal God that lovingly and graciously admires you and has an affection for you? You see, Jesus didn't come just so that we can not go to hell and simply obey him better. Jesus came so that we can have a relationship with a loving and gracious father. That's why he came. See, in our text, God is engaging Jonah at his deepest heart level, and he's graciously trying to get Jonah to see him. He's like, Jonah, look at me. I'm gracious. I'm infinite. And no matter how deeply you defy me, I'm still going to come after you. In verse 6, it says that God sent a plant to save him from his discomfort. So that word discomfort there in the original language, the Hebrew, is the word for evil or wickedness. You see, God has graciously said, hey, I'm going to show you my grace. I'm going to show you my power so that I can save you from your sinfulness. See, God was showing Jonah his sovereign mercy and grace, and he did that by showing him a miracle of grace, right? He showed him this miraculous growth of a plant to give this guy shade. And so it wasn't only to meet his need, but to show that God is all-powerful and that he loves him. 
You see, that plant grew in a night. And I don't know about you, but my wife and I strive for weeks watering things and trying to put some miracle grow in them, and they still die. Like, I can show you pictures later. Like, they, they just die. But yet God speaks the word, and he's all-powerful, and all of a sudden this plant grows up and provides this dude shade. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you have seen miracle, the miracle of grace like Jonah has, except for a, an exceedingly greater amount of it. You see, it's easy to look at at Jonah and kind of judge him in this story, right, and say, man, why doesn't this dude get it? Like, he's seen a miracle. He's been freed from the belly of a fish, and he's got a plant that just grew overnight. Why doesn't he get it? But the truth of the matter is we don't either. We are Jonah, except the difference between us and Jonah is that our miracle is much grander than anything we could ever imagine, You see, the miracle that we've seen is that you and I were once lost and now have been found. You and I were dead and and now are alive, thanks be to God, and yet we don't get it. You see, there's times where we fall into this trap, into believing that this whole thing's about believing the right thing and being a good person. We, We think that the whole thing's about our comfort, our needs, and our being a good person, when in reality, Jesus has opened our eyes to see him truly for who he is. I did a wedding a couple weeks back in Car- the Kearney area. It was a beautiful country wedding. It was awesome. It was really fun. But one of the things that I look for at a wedding is the photographer. Now, if you're a photographer, I might offend you because this is what I think a good photographer would do. It's part of it. Anyway, so here, here's what I look for. I look for the, whether or not the photographer captures moments. There's these moments in weddings that are significant that you can't really get back. And so here's what I usually look for. There's this moment in the wedding where everyone's standing. The groom is looking down the aisle waiting for his bride to circle around. And then she comes around that corner for the first time. And if you're a good photographer, they're going to turn and they're going to look at the groom. Because for the first time, that groom has seen his bride all glorious, all beautiful, in white, and that dude's face just lights up. And if they're really good, they turn in an instant to the bride. Because she just circled the corner with a whole crowd of people and her dad, but then she sees her dude. Right? Like, he's all handsome, he's got it all going on and stuff, and she's like, look at that dude, right? Pride and joy. Like, if they're going to capture that moment where the both of these lo- people lock eyes and they just, they get excited because they see the beauty of them, them coming together in this beautiful thing called marriage. And man, I want to tell you, every single marriage should strive for that. They should strive for both of you looking at each other with the pride and joy of that wedding day, of this covenant relationship that was built. But here's why. The reason why is because it's a display of something far grander. It's a display of something far greater. To a greater degree, this is how we ought to view Jesus. You see, we see him as our our handsome husband, so to speak, our groom, who has invited us into his family. He graciously and mercifully gave his own life so that we can be graciously invited into his family. And so we see him with pride and with joy because he's given us his perfect record for our sinful one. He went through the belly of the fish for us. He went to the cross for us and paid every single ounce of penalty that we deserve. And then catch this. We also have to know that that's the way he looks at us too. That's the way Jesus sees us. Us, as his bride, rounding the corner with, washed in his righteousness, his goodness, his beauty. 
See, God is trying to compel Jonah to see him for who he really is, see him in his glory. So God confronts Jonah's heart and not his behavior in this. See, God, God wanted Jonah to find pleasure in God and not in a plant or his good circumstances. But as often is true of us, this wasn't enough for our boy Jonah. Let's pick it up in verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. You see, God gave this dude a day. He said, I'm going to give you a day. See how it goes. And, and, and he just stays posted up with the, the plant over him. So the grace that he received, God took away. Right? Like God destroyed that plant in an instant. Just as quickly as he appointed it, he took it away and caused a great east wind to come upon him. And so when you think of this, don't think April and kite flying. Okay? This is the near east, not Nebraska. So here, here's how this wind is described. The temperature rises drastically, and the humidity drops. It is a constant and extremely hot wind that contains fine particles of dust, just nasty. It contains constant hot air so full of positive ions that it affects the levels of serotonin and other brain neurotransmitters, causing exhaustion, depression, feelings of unreality, which I can see that, and occasionally bizarre behavior, which is what Jonah's displaying right now. So let's just say this dude's not happy, right? Like Jonah's not happy anymore. It says that he grew faint, which means that he felt as though his life was fleeting away. See, Jonah probably thought that God was finally answering his prayer from, from chapter 4, verse 3, when he asked for God to take his life. So what does Jonah do? Well, verse 8. He's like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and pray to that. I'm going to ask God to, to take my life. So dude is done, right? Like he's done with his life. It's over with. He's like, just take it away. And, and so he's asking God to consider t- taking his life, right? So what happens? God asks him the validity of his anger, and then Jonah thinks that God has just given up on him. That's what's going on here. Jonah thinks that God has given up on him, that he's just going to let him slide on into eternity. But I think here's what happened. The dude forgot the storm, right? God values our heart being turned toward him so much so that he would graciously take everything away from us that we might be tempted to find our comfort, security, and love in. You see, this may seem like this game that God was playing with Jonah, but let me tell you the truth. This is, this is God's gracious act in Jonah's life. We so easily get trapped in in seeing the temporary over the eternal, the urgent over the important things. God wants us to grow deeper and stronger in our intimacy and understanding of him. And he's willing to put us through the most desperate of situations just to gain our attention toward him, just to grasp it. C.S. Lewis is quoted as saying it this way. He says, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, consciousness, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse the deaf ear. See, God doesn't want some flippant obedience just for obedience sake. He ultimately wants our heart's affection. He's, he, he's graciously confronting our hearts again and again with his grace to say, hey, look at me. Let's take a look at how this ends, the last three verses. Let's pick it up in verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? 
And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. That is crazy. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? So what we see here is God coaches our heart with truth. God coaches our heart with truth. So I don't know about you, when I read that verse 9 there, it kind of blew my mind. I'm like, did that dude for real just do that? Like, he, he started getting smart with God when God was talking to him. I, don't, I, don't, I can't, can't see my head around that. Like, my kids learn real quick, like, don't get smart with Dad. He just doesn't get it. And so, but yet, God, in his grace, doesn't kill him, right? Like, I would have killed that dude just right then and there. Fine. But this section, this section of Scripture, actually, it has some people confused, because it has a, a peculiar ending. So basically what's happening is, is God has two rhetorical questions. And then to avoid those questions and not listen, Jonah just asked to die, right? And, and so the reason why there's some confusion to it, or at least it's kind of a wonder about it, is because it doesn't have a, like a natural conclusion, right? Like it doesn't have a neatly tied bow or resolution to the story. It just says, and much cattle, which is very strange. But remember the audience, though. The audience isn't simply Jonah in his life, it's God's people, it's Israel. You see, God wants to coach our hearts in the value of human life. You see, Jonah valued the life of a plant over human life. He wanted to divide the world into good people and bad people, criminals and law-abiding citizens, and one life is more valuable than the other. Pastor H.B. Charles Jr. says it this way, The Lord made man in his own image and in his own likeness, and man keeps trying to return the favor. Essentially, what he's saying is that we like to sit in our little cul-de-sacs of faith and draw these straight lines for God in the sand as to who deserves dignity and who doesn't. As if God made some sort of mistake in making some in his image. We do this primarily because we, like Jonah, think God should give grace to us and people like us, or at least people that we like, but he should withhold grace toward those who we don't like. So there's two coaching points for our hearts here. First, we need to grow in our view of God. In verse 10, God points out, man, I created them. I created everything, the sun, the moon, the stars, the very ground you stand on, I created. I created the very air that I mercifully allow you to breathe in and out. It is mine. You see, Jonah's view of God was in his little box. God was only for his kind of people, his nation, his comfort, his joy. But God is the God of all. He sets the pace. He sets the tone. He gets to decide. We don't think that God is capable of loving or embracing folks that don't fit in our little nice neat box. Jonah 2.9 says it clearly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He created them, therefore he gets to choose. In 2 Kings, when we first see Jonah in our story, we see God sending a message of grace and mercy for his disobedient people, Israel. And so Jonah runs in and saves the day. He, he preaches the good news of God's grace and mercy. And so that same person who readily gave mercy and grace to his own kind of people is angry when that grace is extended to his enemies and not toward a plant. So what Jonah is confusing is the fact that God made both the plant and Nineveh. 
God made both Jonah and Israel. God made both your worst enemy and your best friend. They are all God's possessions. They are his to do with what he pleases. We have no right to diminish the value of another human life. They are God's creation. They are his stewardship. And that's the, that gets us to the second coaching point, actually. Not only did God create all of the things, but God created man in his image. See, we were created to display God. So not only do we need to grow in our view of God, but we need to grow in our view of humanity. God made all of us in his likeness, the most committed saint and the most heinous sinner, both made in his image, both sinned before a holy God and both in desperate need of a savior. And yet he created them in equal and dignity and value both. And we spent most of our life trying to repair that. As if God made some sort of mistake of placing his image on some. Verse 10 and 11 is a gracious plea. It's, it's a plea to coach Jonah's heart and our heart toward truth. This truth right here. You see, we like to look at this story from the outsider's perspective, right? Like Jonah's right there. We're going to analyze his motives and why he's doing this and, and all of his actions in the midst of it. When in reality, this is a story to dissect yours and my heart. It's meant for us to think about what's going on. It's a rhetorical question for you and me to take to our heart. So when you see a person that is different than you, do you see them as someone possessing the very image of the very God who created you? When someone was, has wronged you, do you see them as a worse offender of God than you? When you hear of a young black boy who's had priors being shot and killed by a police officer, do you have just a little bit less compassion because you know he's a criminal? When you hear of an undocumented immigrant who's lived here their whole life, is stripped from their family, do you say, man, the system's finally working? Or... Do you have compassion in the fact that this person, this man, woman, mother, father, son, or daughter is being taken away from their family? See, these are the questions that we have to wrestle with as people who say we walk with Jesus. Jesus, who saved us by grace. You see, none of these people are of less value. All of these people are created by God in his image. All of these people reflect the very God we worship, and none of them, and I mean none of them, are less deserving of his grace than we are. In John 8, there's this scenario with Jesus, and uh, these guys were, religious guys were waiting for this woman. It's, it's actually titled, Woman Caught in Adultery, right? And so they wait for the woman to go into this house, and it blows my mind that they didn't stop her from going in, as people who say they follow God. But they let her go in. And then they drag her out of that house, leaving the man behind. And they drag her before Jesus and throw her on the ground and say, Jesus, Moses in the law says to stone this woman. What do you say? And Jesus says, well, stone her. The, the law says it. No, he didn't say that. That's not what he said. What Jesus said in, in John chapter 8 was this. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. 
You see, all of a sudden, these guys seized up because they started to recognize their sin before a holy God. In fact, based on the law that they were quoting, they only obeyed half of it in the first place. Leviticus and Deuteronomy says this, that both the man and the woman should have been drug out and stoned. But the problem is neither one of these men had the right to stone her. Only Jesus did. And what did he say? He gave her grace. See, these men saw that woman as less valuable than a man, which is why they left them behind. Do you see all that? That throughout all of human history, God has been trying to engage his people to say, hey, look at people the way I see them. They bear my image. He's been calling his people not to see the way the world would see people, but to see them the way he does. Every person bears the image of God and therefore is given innate value and dignity from God. There is no space to say who deserves grace and who doesn't. There's no space for it. Who is more valuable than the other person? Look at verse 11 again. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? You see, God is coaching us, right? He, he's coaching Jonah's heart for the individuals, the persons, the souls, the stories of the people of Nineveh, right? You see, our, our human heart, it, it leans itself toward dehumanization as a byproduct. It's easy for us to do. We don't think through the stories, the backgrounds, where these people are from. It's far easier to draw these, these comfortable assumptions and categories for people rather than getting to know where they come from. Far easier. And so God says there's 120,000 soul stories that don't know their right hand from their left. And, and there's a debate as to who these people are. There, there's really just two uh, assumptions as to who these people are that he's talking about here. And I think actually you're probably going to, we're going to draw to the same conclusion either way. So, so the first set is to say this 120,000 people who don't know their right from their left hand are children, right? Like my son, 90% of the time puts his shoe on the wrong foot, even though it's a 50-50 shot, right? Doesn't know his right from his left. It's weird. Uh, anyway, but, but, but the, the, so that's, that's what it's saying. So he's like, Jonah, there's children there. There are children in the city who haven't heard about me, who haven't heard my word, who haven't been given the opportunity to receive mercy and grace, and you want me to kill them? Really, Jonah? There, 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 it reminds me of this rhetoric that sometimes goes about in Christianity that I've heard people like, man, things have gotten so bad. I need Jesus to come back right now. While there is a place for us to long for our king to come back and make all things right, I don't think it's in place of desiring that he wouldn't have long-suffering or patience that others might get saved. Pastor Austin quoted uh, 2 Peter 3.9 last week. He says this, the Lord is patient to you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see that? We, sh we shouldn't desire or want any children to perish. However, let me point out something. It says in that same text that God doesn't wish that anyone should perish, nor should we. Which is, actually gets us to the second understanding of this text. The second understanding is that that 120,000 people are Nineveh. When, it, when it's using the don't know their right from their left, is actually figurative language saying that they don't know right from wrong. They don't know that they're lost. 
They just don't know that they've sinned against a holy God. They don't know that they are in desperate need of a Savior. Just like Jesus, Jesus pleads at the cross. He says, Father, they know not what they do. Please forgive them. Because here's the deal. All of us, prior to faith in Jesus, are in that same place, lost. We don't know. We have no clue. We may know, yes, I sin sometimes, but we don't know the devastation of our sin and the level of displeasure and the level of of sin against the holy God. And we certainly don't know that we are in desperate need of a Savior. And so how do we as humans look at other humans who are enslaved by sin in judgment when we once were them? We were once them. A hip-hop artist named Tripoli that I, I listen to often, he, he puts it this way. He says, we're just one beggar telling another where the bread is. You see, we can't look down on anyone at that point because we're saved by grace, we're sustained by grace, and we get to be with Jesus for all of eternity by grace. You see, it's not something that we've done for ourselves. We as Christians are not better than anyone. We're just better off by grace. We often say here at City Light that at the foot of the cross, it's level ground, which basically means, man, when I sit with my neighbor and I look to the left and I look to the right, I can just say, me too. I need grace. Me too. I have fallen short in sin against the holy God. Me too. See, Jonah's story is not some cutesy story of a guy that got swallowed by a fish and spat out. No, it's God showing. He's displaying himself to his people and engaging them in such a way where he wants to align their hearts with his. As we found out last week, our, our, our version of grace is small in comparison to God's. And as we've seen as the weeks in past, is that God's sovereign plan is far more robust, far more calculated than ours. We mustn't put God in our small little box, but allow him to rule and reign over every aspect of our life. Now, I know some of us in here are struggling with grace. Especially when it comes to the grace that, that God might have for us, right? Like, can I just raise my hand and say, me too? I struggle with grace. But if you struggle with grace and have not placed your faith in Jesus, I can promise you that's as far as you're going to get. But if you do, if you do place your faith in Jesus, I can promise you if, you, if you place your faith in the fact that Jesus really did die for yours and my sin, that he really did raise from the grave to give you life and relationship with a, a holy and good and gracious and beautiful God, if you do place your faith in that, I can promise you that you will start to unpack the layers of the beautiful grace that is upon you. See, Jonah thought that he was better than Nineveh, and then God displayed to Jonah that both him and Nineveh needed a Savior, and so do you. So so there's no other way. There's no other way to get your sins paid for. There's no other way to receive the grace of God and have a relationship with him. Would you place your faith in him? Would you trust in him? Not just to simply get your sins paid for and obey him, but so that you might be in a relationship with a loving and gracious father. And Christian, follower of Jesus, can I ask you, how big's your God? Is he big enough to confront your sin and coach you in your lack of belief in his grace for others? Is he big enough that you might value his kingdom far more than your nation? Is he big enough to call you to the mat to see how gracious he is and see how beautiful he is? See, our call today is not simply to walk away with a great series, but to walk away with a changed heart. That's our call today. 
our prayer for us as a family. There's a guy named Bob Pierce from World Vision. Here's his prayer, and this is our prayer for us too. Let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. Let my heart be broken for the things that break the heart of God. God's heart was broken for Nineveh, and God was pleading with Jonah for his heart to be broken too. So how about us? How about City Light Church? Who's going to be invited to City Light Church? Is it going to be middle-class white people? Well, I sure hope so, because most of you are that. In the room, that's your neighbor, your friends. We love you. I love you. We're good together, okay? But what about the alcoholic? What about the person that just got locked up this weekend? What about the drug dealer? What about the person who votes differently than you? What about the prostitute? I'm praying that God spares us from the heart of Jonah as a church family and gives us the heart of Jesus. You see, the heart of Jesus 2,000 years ago gave us a symbol to continue to remember how big his grace is and how big our God is, that he would come, take on flesh, and die, right? And so every other week at City Light Church, we, we want to remind ourselves of that by taking communion. So, so when we grab that bread and dip it in the juice and consume it, it is us reminding ourselves of the graciousness of the God who came, died, and rose for us. And so when you come up, remember that. Remember that you once were, okay? Remember that you once were far off from God, running from God, and not running toward him, but yet he graciously pursued you. And then remember that that death was death for many and not just for you. Amen? Let's pray.